thank you, Alan. Um, and I, I, since you um, kindly didn't say much about my time at uh, SICE, I won't say anything about your time at SICE. So <laughs> we're on good footing there. Uh, I, uh, it's great to be here. I've never been to Austin, always wanted to come. Um, I'm, I've been here for a few hours, and um, my appreciation of Austin is um, margaritas, uh, Bloody Marys in the morning. I didn't have them, but that's what the, the hotel was telling me. I had to start the day that way. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to after this lecture uh, <laughs> when I can actually have them. Uh, I did just leave government, so one of the things I want to say is that um, the views that I'm about to share with you are really mine. And, and uh, you know, while I may have held some of them while I was in government, I speak only for myself now. H old habits die hard. Um, I use the um, plural pronoun we a lot, and by that um, I mean the United States or the U.S. government. And sometimes I just say we and it's not me. It's, I just want to be clear about that, particularly since uh, you're videotaping this. Um, so let me start by um, asking a show of hands. Um, how many of you have ever heard of Homeland Security? <laughs> okay. How many of you actually could tell me what Homeland Security is in one sentence? Show of hands. Okay, so this is, a, this is an example of the problem that we live in today. It turns out that Homeland Security has great brand recognition. Everybody's heard of it. It's a household name. Problem is very few people know what it is. They think maybe TSA, they think Secret Service, maybe FEMA. But those are operating units. That's not Homeland Security. And in the business world, if you, if you had a universal brand recognition, but your customers, your consumers don't know what they're buying, you'd go out of business, right? And maybe that's why it's okay for Congress to threaten to shut down the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security, the only department that was threatened to be shut down in this year. So we have a problem. And that's that, you know, after I've, I've now worked in and around Homeland Security for almost two decades. Um, I had the opportunity, uh, probably as a, as a fair warning to those of you who are interested in the academic world, don't write a paper recommending the creation of a job that you really think is really cool because somebody may offer it to you. Uh, I, I, I wrote a paper in, in, when I was at CSIS that created the position which I was then hired to do. Um, but the problem is not just a public perception problem with Homeland Security. Even those at the highest levels of government in our national security established don't fully appreciate what we've created in this Homeland Security paradigm. So I want to tell a little story about what we've created and reflect a little bit about what I think I've learned and that we hopefully as a nation can learn and possibly others around the world. It's an important story, not just because we worry about terrorism, but because the world is changing and national security is changing, or perhaps national security is not changing and it should be. In fact, the institutions that we rely on to manage our national security programs, our interests, are relics of the World War II time period. They're 60 years old, and we haven't really changed them in 60 years. And it's my contention that we can learn a lot from the newest and youngest new family member of our federal family, the Homeland Security. After all, it's an institution that was born out of a new world where one we all talk about, this globalized world. Its very essence and DNA 
and hence capabilities spring forth from the changing world in which it grew out of. So I'm going to start with the world back around 2001 and um, work our way forward. So it's said of the tragic events of 9-11 that we are vulnerable to unimaginable and catastrophic surprise attacks. The vivid images of the day portrayed an obviously shaken nation, and for years after, even today, to some extent, the vulnerability of America was the dominant narrative of our times and of our security environment. And we built a security architecture to protect our fragile nation from further vulnerability and from further catastrophe. In 2002, uh, then-President Bush issued our nation's first homeland security strategy. In it, he embraced and amplified the narrative of America the vulnerable, writing, and I quote, the need for homeland security is tied to our enduring vulnerability. Terrorists wish to attack us and exploit our vulnerabilities because of the freedoms we hold dear. And in that first strategy and going forward, we learned of and heard of new kind of threat. We learned that America's great power that dominated the 20th century leaves enemies with few conventional options for, for, doing harm, for doing us harm. So now what they have to do is exploit our free and open society. And this would, this would be easy to do because the new threat was not some invading army or an ICBM. No, the new threat could be characterized by three simple traits. A small operational footprint. There were only 19 attackers on, on, on 2000, in 2001. The ability to hide in play side, plain sight and live amongst us. And third, an ease of transnational mobility. So remember these three because we're going to come back to them. Small operational footprint, hide in plain sight, transnational mobility. <clears throat> at the time, I was working at CSIS, as Alan referred to. And I wrote a number of uh, arguments that said the strategy f that we had adopted back then failed to address the underlying logic of terrorism. See, terrorism's not just about tactics and plugging the dam of vulnerabilities. At its core, terrorism is about fear. Fear is the coin of the realm. It's about taking away our sense of safety. It's about undermining government. It's about breaking the sacred trust between people and their leaders. And the dialectic we set up after 9-11 in those early days was about plugging holes. We heard from the government over and over again the message that the government has to be right all of the time. Terrorists only have to be right once. It's a perverse logic. It's a logic that leads us either to absolute security and limitless spending. We have to protect against previously unimaginable and now possible events. It's a logic that leads us to either that or the terrorist does, in fact, get it right once and our nation has failed. So my talk is entitled Security by Design. <clears throat> and by design, I mean intention, by deliberate act. See, design is the first signal of human intentions. In public policy, we call design strategy. And with design, with strategy, we first have to answer a key question. What are our intentions? What do we want the world to be? And preventing another 9-11, which is the thrust of our first homeland security strategy, while critically important, it's not a strategy. It's not a vision. To be fair, 
we had, our, we had in our first homeland security strategy many of the right elements. We had a, a belief of a whole of society approach. We had a belief that homeland security is a shared responsibility. And we had an understanding that we needed to be able to respond to disasters as well as prevent them. And in some sense, those trying to build the institution were, frankly, trying to build a plane while flying it. They didn't have the luxury necessary, possibly, to, to think about strategy. Even so, what we lacked was a vision, in my view, a place where we wanted to go. And I would argue that in the implementation, we failed to address the coin of the realm. We failed to address the fear factor. Telling people that we were only one mistake short of a disaster, telling them that we were unendingly vulnerable, and then building a national alert system, the color-coded Homeland Security Alert System, that told everyone when to be scared, telling them that it was time to be scared, but to do nothing. It inculcated our daily lives with fear, even in the absence of terrorism. So when we talk about design, I believe the answer was there all along. How do we deal with the fear? It's part of the 9-11 narrative that perhaps we lost. On that same day, we experienced a catastrophic surprise, a surprise attack. There were other images, firefighters racing up the stairs of the Twin Towers, police and first responders rushing to aid others in need of help at the Pentagon, and of ordinary Americans, indeed total strangers, coming together to help each other cope with challenges large and small. And of course, there was Flight 93, where people joined together without the direction or support of the government to protect themselves and to protect the nation. These stories of bravery, courage, and resolve of the American people tell a more complete story of homeland security. Not that Americans should go about their lives or not worry. Not that, that the government would take care of you. No, these, this story, this, these images, what we saw and what we learned was that people, communities, working together are and need to be part of the solution. That's interesting. And more importantly, numbered pages need to be in order. <laughs> homeland security is at its core a shared responsibility. That's the power of homeland security. It's the power of people. It's the power of networks. And in 2010, we rewrote the national strategy with this notion as its premise. In the nation's first quadrennial homeland security review, we established for the first time a vision, a clear and defined vision of where we are headed and an answer to what our intentions are and should be. It's a single sentence. That vision is of a safe, secure, and resilient homeland, where against a safe, secure, and resilient homeland against terrorism and all hazards, where American interests, aspirations, and way of life can thrive. It's a forward-looking vision, rooted in our values, suffused with our history and our hopes for tomorrow. It's a vision that is anchored on two foundational pillars, security and resilience. 
a safe, secure, and resilient homeland where our interests and aspirations can thrive. We add to the focus of prevention the idea of resilience. And with this simple addition, we recognize and empower ourselves to adopt a strategic posture where we bend but not break, where we readily adapt and rapidly recover to whatever we may face. You recognize it today, of course. It's Boston Strong. And we created programs to operationalize this concept, programs to design in resilience into critical infrastructure systems, to stimulate innovation in the field and recognize best practices. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those examples later. So we had one vision statement, and we, we actually gave the Department and the Homeland Security specific missions. How do you accomplish that vision? You do it through the missions, and there are five. Preventing terrorism is one. It's the founding and enduring mission of Homeland Security. Securing our borders, administering our immigration system, safeguarding cyberspace, a new mission for the Department and for the nation in 2010, and finally building resilience. If you accomplish all five of these missions, you will be well on your way to a safe, secure, and resilient homeland where American interests and aspirations can thrive. So we defined a vision. We created clear missions. But you also have to understand that there are significant new capabilities that merge out of this notion of homeland security. These are manifestly different from national security. And I want to go over some of those differences because it will help understand in my mind, and I think to those who are learning about homeland security, what tools we have that we didn't have before. So you have to remember that national security is a concept that we didn't have until the 20th century. The concept of national security was little known until the 1930s and was only formally established as an organizing principle after World War II. The National Security Act of 1947 brought together the Department of War and the Department of Navy into a single integrated entity that became the Department of Defense. And a little trivia, the Department of Defense wasn't its original name. The original name was the National... Anyone know it? National Military Establishment. But I think it was a little too cute if you look at the acronym, NME. The act also created the National Security Council and a position on the president's staff that would later become the National Security Advisor. What was innovative at the time and what was necessary at the time was to bring together under one single umbrella, umbrella, international affairs and military strategy. Up until that time, two largely separate domains, sometimes in tension and conflict with each other, but to be coordinated together under the rubric of national security. Over the decades, aspects of economic policy, trade policy, energy policy, and others were also drawn into the ambit of national security. And then comes 9-11. And in 2002, we integrated the various elements of homeland security in a similar manner. 22 agencies to create the Department of Homeland Security coming together, as well as standing up a Homeland Security Council. So in effect, the 2002 Homeland Security Act added a third concept to the notions of national security. You had military and foreign the pillars of military and foreign affairs on the one hand, and then you associated with them this notion of domestic security. Three pillars, one concept, national security. This was a huge change. In one breath, in one stroke of the pen, we connected foreign affairs and intelligence from abroad 
to cops in their communities on the street. Homeland security is, in fact, that bridge between foreign and domestic, between local communities and international security, between warfighting and law enforcement. And as such, it is a powerful new tool for protecting America. It is designed to find the needle in the haystack. And to do this, Homeland Security operates very differently than the traditional national security structures and entities. Let me elaborate. First of all, organization. National security is strategic. It's centralized. It's top-driven. Homeland Security, by contrast, is operational, it's transactional, it's decentralized, and it's bottom-driven. It's driven by the grassroots of the country, by states, by cities, by municipalities. It's by the people living on a day-to-day basis in their daily lives. That's where Homeland Security lives. Second, in terms of culture, the national security culture comes out of a military and intelligence community. Homeland Security is about law enforcement, emergency management, and the local political environment that is the vibrancy of our country. In national security, there is a culture of confidentiality, the need to protect the nation's most sensitive information. In homeland security, there's an expectation of transparency. And to bridge the two cultures, we had to move from a a posture of need to know to a duty to share. That's about connecting dots. Third, management. In national security, it's about unity of command, top-down, all the way to the bottom. In homeland security, it's about unity of effort, distributed across many. Everyone needs to row in the same direction, but no one entity has the power to direct all all the others. So we have two very different models. And if we embrace the homeland security model, people, businesses, communities become part of that solution. Homeland security is a shared responsibility. And the individuals who work on the bottom of this pyramid become force multipliers. A suspicious activity report from one city can be fused with intelligence from abroad to understand what risk we may be seeing in a third city. The resilience of one family and their preparedness preserves scarce resources, scarce response resources for more vulnerable families. And the timing of this new tool couldn't be more important, more more opportunistic. Even though we're 15 years probably down the road now, the problems we face today demand the model for homeland security. I'm going to talk about a, a couple of them. Violent extremism, severe weather, cyber, bio threats. Think about them. Small footprint easily moving across transnational boundaries, hard to detect. Let's start with the terrorist threat. So there's been a qualitative uh, change in the manifestation of terrorism in the, in, the rest, in, the, in the most recent of years and even, frankly, in the most recent of months. Mostly, terrorist threat has become increasingly transnational and harder to detect. <clears throat> we saw this emerging Sometime between 2007 and 2010 in America, there was a group of Somali-American youth uh, in Minneapolis who went abroad to join al-Shabaab. Nobody noticed that they had gone until it was too late. And there was a question, how many others have gone abroad? Who are we missing? Who's targeting our youth? Increasingly, we see terrorist groups and their adherents use propaganda 
more and more over the Internet and through social media to inspire supporters outside of conflict zones to conduct their own terrorist attacks in their home countries. Prior to 2008-10, the way we, people would be recruited in America is physically together in the same space. You'd have to be on a walk in a bar, in a restaurant, in a mosque to have that contact. You'd go for a walk. You'd have a conversation. You'd get introduced to someone else. And people would make arrangements. And your training would occur abroad. You'd go abroad for, for further training, perhaps religious training, as we're talking about um, al-Qaeda and its adherents. And then you would have operational training and perhaps go operational. That doesn't happen anymore. Or it does, but not as much. Today, what we face more in America is the recruitment trying to inspire lone individuals in our local communities to, to use the Internet to take on the same mission on their own and to acquire weapons, tactics, training, to do surveillance. You can do it all on the Internet now. These people, individuals, lone wolves, lone offenders, working on the Internet, very hard to find. They're the proverbial needle in the haystack. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go into all of the solutions that we have. Let me just touch on, on, the, on the violent extremist challenge um, because I want to go into a couple of others and then I really want to have a chance to, to talk with you. The Homeland Security model works well for CVE. Why? Because we had a fundamental principle. We had two principles to, a, to a developing programs to counter the violent extremist threat in America. Principle number one, communities know themselves best. Government can't come in and figure out what's going on in a community. Community can know. But the community can develop, can be, can be supported with appropriate tools to protect themselves. Principle two is cops deal with violence every day. Can't we adhere or add programs to have to do with countering violent extremism to their current workload to leverage their violence programs? And that's just what we did. First and foremost, understanding the terrorist threat. Second, developing uh, partnerships with the community and empowering local law enforcement with the knowledge, behavioral indicators, understanding of the threat, intelligence, so that they can then identify within themselves, within their own community, suspicious activities, opportunities to interdict at the earliest opportunity. And why is this necessary? Because terrorists aren't born, they become. Before you are a terrorist, you're a nonviolent. Before you have any intention you may just have radical ideas, extremist ideas, or maybe not even violent ideas. There is a pathway, a continuum, and somewhere along that line, intent happens. But until that occurs, there is no role for government. There's no, lawful, uh, there's, no, there, there's no unlawful activity. And so communities really need to protect themselves. And through a, through a bottom-up approach, the, counter, the president's national strategy to empower communities... Is, this, is now the current standard that is being developed for programs, not just in America, but around the world. Let me talk to about a second threat, cyber. So we're entering a new world of ubiquitous connectedness. It's a fascinating world that will lead to an extraordinary understanding of ourselves and the world we live in. Smartphones, smart meters, smart devices, smart cars, smart homes, smart buildings, smart cities, smart world. We hope so. 
Over the past decade or more, the cost of electronic sensors and bandwidth the computer processing have all dropped dramatically. And if you combine this with the advances in material sciences and wireless connectivity and data storage capacities, you have a recipe for the emergence and growth of the so-called Internet of Things, ubiquitous connectivity of devices. This, in turn, provides an opportunity or an ability to build cheaper devices that will know their surroundings. And at the heart of this are sensors or sensor technologies. So if devices can now sense their environments, they can actually exist, know, interact, and have presence in their surroundings. We're about to see a change in the world like we've never seen. These self-aware interactive devices can more readily be networked. They can more readily be shared remotely. So in 2012, there was about 3 billion uh, users of the Internet, um, people. Uh, last year, there were 10 billion devices connected to the Internet. In 2020, there will be 30 to 50 billion devices connected to the Internet. Devices will be more connected to the Internet than people. They will have the same capability, they will have comparable capability of sensing and knowing and interacting with their surroundings. And they'll be responsible for who knows what kinds of things. Intelligent buildings <coughs> for more sustainable energy use, remote monitoring of mining operations, smart meters to, to, to better sustain power consumption by automatically adjusting uh, parameters to accommodate demand, urban transportation systems and traffic management to ease congestion and pollution and enhance security, even more transparent government with enhanced delivery of services. It's a brave new world, a exciting opportunity. It's actually the most hyped technology that, in 2013. And yet this potential is juxtaposed against a backdrop of a pandemic and cyber crimes and threats that are facilitated by the increased linkages between the physical and the cyber world, which is at the heart of ubiquitous connectivity. It creates an opportunity for malicious actors anywhere in the world to potentially disrupt services and lives on a far more consequential level than ever before. The number one complaint, crim uh, criminal complaint last year uh, by citizens was uh, identity theft. And that's gone up year after year. If you look at just the last two years in terms of type of crimes we're seeing on the Internet, you have the each, year, each succeeding year worse than the year before. And I'll list a few of them. Um, these will be familiar names to those of you who are following this and familiar companies to those of you who are not. Target, Corn Ficker, Heartland, Spam House, Anthem Insurance, Chase, Experium, in the last two years, we've seen the largest credit card breach in history, the largest computer worm in history, the largest denial of service in history, affecting hundreds and millions of people, and, of course, the epic Sony Pictures hack of employee uh, data, et cetera, um, and the implication of a state actor. So these challenges are not readily addressed using traditional national security tools. They're happening at all levels of society, at all places of society, and if we hook everything up in society, who's going to be responsible? The challenge today is we haven't assigned roles and responsibilities, but we're not going to use our traditional national security tools necessarily. We're certainly not going to use 
um, necessarily armies to invade other nations, it, but we may use other tools. We stood up a cyber command, for example. The question is, what's the role of homeland security? It's a natural fit with the profile I described previously. And I won't go in, I, we can go into more detail in the discussion period. The last example I want to give is the notion of resilience. Over the past decade, we've seen an unprecedented number of weather-related disasters, so tornadoes, droughts, wildfires, crop uh, uh, freezes, and winter storms. Um, and these have had a devastating effect on communities across the United States, not, not to say the rest of the world as well, but in the United States, we've seen billions of dollars of damage 2011 was a record year in the United States. We experienced 14 natural catastrophes. We had a record 98 presidentially declared disasters. In 2012, we faced Hurricane Sandy, the largest Atlantic uh, hurricane on record. And second costliest in the nation, Sandy affected 81,000 properties, $65 billion in damages. The impact of extreme weather is not unique to to the United States. We're seeing that across the world. And the question is, aside from the um, climate change question, which is what you can do to suspend or divert the climate from its pathway, the question is, what do you do to respond to the catastrophe? and How do you limit the disasters? And one of the things I was able to participate in at the Department of Homeland Security was an innovative new program because it's not a top-down solution to, so to solve. It's, it's a bottom-up solution. You all may be familiar with the notion uh, with the program called Energy Star. In the 1980s, uh, <clears throat> if, you wanted to, if you cared about um, your carbon footprint and your cost of energy and you wanted to go buy the best refrigerator to address your interests and values, you'd have to go look at the technical information on the back of the refrigerator. And if you were really, really smart, you could figure out you know, what kind of emissions it had and how it compared. But in the 80s, starting in the 80s, we created this Energy Star program, which was a labeling program that allowed people to know it was a, a rated device. If you had an Energy Star rating, you knew it adhered to the best, best in practice, best standards for energy consumption and costs, et cetera. What if we were able to do that with the built environment? What if you were able to build a house, to buy a house that was resilient? How would you know? What are the standards that you need to know? Too hard. What if you could label it a resilient star? So last year was the first year that, that a program of such Nature went into a, a pilot in uh, the, the southern coasts of uh, the United States, and there were 12 houses that were just built that are resilient star labeled. It is a market program, market-driven program to build a market. So not the government has, doesn't have a role to play other than to help facilitate the creation of the market. Homeland Security was at the center of it. And the notion is you start with houses, and then you go to other infrastructures, and one house at a time, one bridge at a time, one piece of critical infrastructure at a time, you recapitalize America to be more resilient. It's a bottom-up approach. So I've given you three examples of bottom-up approaches, of new ways of dealing with 
security threats that we face. Bio is another one. I didn't have a time uh, to go into that. We can talk about it, but um, it, it also fits the same profile. Um, what I want to leave you with is um, a different... Uh, a, differenting, a differentiating notion between the 20th century and the, and the 21st century. If you, if you think about the 20th century, we had the grand struggles of the 20th century were totalitarianism, fascism. Um, we overcame those. Those were major struggles of the time, and we overcame them through governments working together side by side. But the security challenges today that we face, countering violent extremism, cyber, bio, responding to disasters, they're not suited, they're not well suited for the traditional tools of military and intelligence. And so unlike previous fights, which we were waged by, largely by governments, this one will require individuals and communities and police and citizens to partner up in, at the local level. Maybe the center, the national governments, will lead the way. I think they will. But it's a form of crowdsourcing. It's about unity of effort from the bottom up. It's about everybody playing a role in a shared responsibility. We need to evolve our security institutions to think about these challenges in the 21st century. And it is my belief, once we take a look at this, in the actions of each of us, we'll be able to secure the world for all of us. Thank you.
this was not new to them. And um, so um, preparedness matters, resilience matters, and I think if we, you know, we, we do run the risk of failure if in our response we give the victory to the terrorists. So maybe I was uh, maybe it was confusing the way I put it, but um, the missions are what's the overarching theme. So the the, the mission of resp- of uh, building national resilience includes to all threats. In fact, the the vision has to do with terrorism and all hazards. Homeland security evolved from just terrorism to all hazards, multi-threat, and if it's ca- if it's catastrophic. DHS is there. And then the question is, stepping back, where is it not catastrophic? But biothreats, um, the department has a, uh, not only a significant role, but it has a, some leadership role in, in different capacities. Uh, on the pandemic, um, non-pharmaceutical interventions, getting blankets out to people. That's what FEMA does. Um, in... Um, uh, in a deliberate attack to all the law enforcement perimeter control if there's needs to do some corning off and things like that. Um, That's part of the local preparedness. And so DHS plays a role. Homeland Security plays a role. Pandemics, deliberate bio, radiological, nuclear. I mean, there's lots of threats that are possible that DHS is preparing for. In closing, I just have one last little question for you. Um, one of the aspects of Homeland Security is, uh, I would think, making sure that bad guys don't get important information that could be used against us. That requires having uh, security clearances and so forth. And so I'm sure you must have gotten the security clearance many times, White House and so forth. And my, my question to you is, um, how did you get a security clearance? Oh, is there a picture of me? Oh, look at that! Hey, that's awesome. Wow, I haven't changed. <laughs> that's great. Wait, let's see what... All right, please join me in thanking uh, David That's cool. That's fun. Where was that from? That was, that was graduation. Is that graduation? Yeah, graduation. Yeah.